0: Let's pray together. Father, there is none like you in heaven or on earth. And just as we sang this morning, God, you never change. God, we believe that. And God, our desire this morning as we continue to worship you now through prayer and through opening your word together, God, we pray that you would come and meet with us. Just as our brother has prayed for us, Holy Spirit, we ask that you come. Unless you build the house, those who labor build in vain. God, help us now. Help us as we open your word to be good hearers. God, I pray that you would help me to say nothing more than is in your word. God, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, please open up to 1 Timothy. I'm usually pretty loud, but that sounds really loud. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Our text this morning is going to be verse 17 through 25. And just as a recap of where we've been this, this letter has been called, rightly so, the church order letter, and as Timothy is moving through uh, this church order letter, he's been unpacking uh, chapter by chapter, we've been unpacking what a rightly ordered church looks like, and last week, as Ryan opened chapter five for us, Paul had shifted his attention from different uh, issues in the church and different Um, uh, topics that he's covering about what a rightly ordered church looks like. In chapter 5, he shifts his attention to different groups in the church. Different age groups, which was chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Talks about older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And then also he talks about uh, widows and orphans. And our passage this morning uh, shows Paul's instructions for the right administration of elders in the church. So another group that Paul is addressing is elders in the church. Specifically, he instructs a plurality of elders, the pay of leaders, the purity of leaders, and patience in appointing leaders. And so if you have a handout this morning, all that's reflected on your handout. One thing that you'll notice, the title, I don't normally title things, I think, I don't normally title things, I think I've... titled every sermon I've preached up here. The title is, The Right Administration of Elders. And that does not sound like the most exciting topic. So if you're new here this morning, bear with me. Uh, We're going to open God's Word. I believe God's Word has a lot to speak to us on this. The banner that's flying over this teaching this morning is in bold under the title, Ephesians 3.21, To Him, to Christ, be glory in His church. So I've got a lot of ground to cover but I would be happy and think it to be a successful thing that if the one thing that you remember this morning that was spoke about from this pulpit is that Christ is to get glory in his church. One of the ways that Christ gets glory in his church is through proper government, through church polity. And I doubt that there are many people, don't raise your hand, But I doubt there are many people in here who would say something like this this morning. It does not matter to me how the United States government is structured. As long as there's some form of leadership in place, I'm good. I doubt there are many people who would say something like that in this room this morning. And yet, if we're not careful, we can have the exact same mindset about government in the church. Don't really care about what the church government looks like. As long as there's some form of leadership, I am happy. And so the question we're going to seek to ask is how should Christ's church be ordered? And this is a question that uh, thankfully I am not, we are not the first people to ask. This question has been asked and answered uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they've been asked, it's been asked and answered in many different ways. And if you take a brief, heave, uh, brief uh, survey of church history, uh, it will show things like an early church document. Early church, meaning uh, early first century, maybe, or late first century into the early second century. And this document was called the Didache. And the Didache recognized a church government that consisted only of two offices, elders and deacons. The church was to be led according to the Didache, an early church document. The church was led by elders. Yet, even though this document, written Late 1st, early 2nd century, as early as the 2nd century, we see that a third office was created. And that's because competent, notable pastors came to assume a formal office that distinguished them from local church eldership. These men assumed a position that was called a bishop, and they accrued authority above and apart from the local church. And not only were these bishops leading in their own congregations, but they were leading congregations in the wider area. Even sometimes in metropolitan areas, bishops would have authority over uh, entire churches outside of their region. And as time moved on, these bishops eventually began vying for position against one another. Until finally, the bishop of Rome insisted on an exclusive authority. An exclusive authority to be the sole arbiter in all matters of truth and faith over the churches. One man leading the show for multiple churches. And with that, the slide from the early church document, the Didache, congregational elder leadership had slidden from there all the way to a one-man show leading the church. And this model of exercising authority, one man having having authority over multiple churches, can even be seen today. You can survey Jackson, Mississippi. You look around our area and see a number of churches who are organizing and structuring themselves in this way. And something important for us to know as we think about that is that God's people are directly influenced by the leadership of the church. Every church you've ever been in that church has been directly led and influenced by the government structure that it has. One commentator said <clears throat> said as the leadership goes, so goes the church. As the church government goes, so goes the church. And so, this begs the question for us this morning. Does Jesus have anything to say? Does the Bible have anything to say? about how we structure ourselves. Does Christ, who loves his church, gave himself up for her, promised to build her up, does he have anything to say about how his his church is to be ordered and governed and structured? I think the answer to this is yes, he does. One uh, One commentator said that some of the worst havoc to the Christian faith has been a direct result of unscriptural forms of church structure. It's a man named Alexander Strauch. John Calvin, a uh, Reformation name you might uh, recognize, he was zealously committed to the idea that both the church's polity and everything done during his weekly gatherings should be explicitly or implicitly commanded in Scripture. And Calvin believed that churches would pay a price For organizing themselves not according to the word of God, but according to the wisdom of the world. And this kind of thinking, the thinking of men like John Calvin and others in the 1500s and 1600s, was one of the wonderful outcomes of the Protestant Reformation. Churchmen recovered the conviction that scripture, rather than timeless tradition, was sufficient for determining the teachings and the doctrines of the church. And in fact, uh, our church right now, um, most of our Bible studies are going through um, the book of Exodus right now. Did you know, if you haven't gotten there yet, sorry for the spoiler alert, but over, almost over half the book of Exodus is dedicated to God giving detailed uh, information, detailed instruction about how to build his tabernacle from everything from height to height length and width to number of rings on curtains to the color of curtains he also told his priests who are going to be entering into uh, into the tabernacle what they should wear then we get into the book of Leviticus and we even have more instruction about who can enter into this tabernacle how they should enter into it who can't enter into it why can't they enter into it so it seems like God has much to say about how people enter into his presence and then as we've seen clearly in the New Testament, specifically in this church order letter, God has much to say about how people order his church. So with that, let's look at 1 Timothy 5, 17, and we're going to read our text. And as we've said before, I say again, these words that we're about to hear are the most important words over this next few minutes. These are without error. So let's read. Chapter 5, Verse 17. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So the first thing that Paul gets to, the first thing that uh, he addresses is this matter of uh, double honor to elders in the church of Jesus. And one thing that we want to point out, and one thing we want to look at this morning is, is uh, uh, what's being assumed here? There's something being assumed here. Yes, we're going to talk about double honor to elders who rule well. But he comes into this passage with an assumption being made. And that assumption is that the church, that, uh, the church in Ephesus has a plurality of elders. It has multiple men leading the church. And in most, if not all of the apostolic, there was a plurality of elders or overseers. Or pastors, and as we've said before, elder, overseer, pastor is uh, these are synonymous terms describing the office of elder in the church. And so, no passage in the New Testament suggests that any church, no matter how small, had only one elder. The consistent New Testament pattern uh, is a plurality of elders. According to Acts fourteen twenty three, a plurality of elders in every church. And so another way to say this is that what we don't see in the New Testament is a diversity of forms of government. But instead, we see a unified and a consistent pattern in which every church had elders governing it and keeping watch over it. For example, elders, plural, elders, multiple, are found in the churches of Judea and surrounding areas as early as Acts 30. Elders multiple were established in individual local churches in Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Ephesus, Philippi, and in Crete. Elders plural governed the church in Jerusalem, according to Acts 15. Elders were established in the churches that Peter wrote to in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And therefore, Paul's instructions come to Timothy this morning in a context where plurality of elders is not something new, but it's a well established teaching in New Testament churches. It's, a new established, it's an established teaching as a model for apostolic churches. And so Paul comes into this context and says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And as we've said before, Paul's not addressing uh, random topics here pulling things out of the hat, saying, let's talk about this. He's addressing specific issues that have come up in the church. And apparently this is one of those issues that needed to be addressed and talked about. And so the whole letter here, this section included, is intended to help Timothy and the church at Ephesus make clear, hard-line distinctions between what failed leadership looks like and what faithful leadership looks like. And that's what he's doing here. He wants to help them see what failed leadership looks like, Draw a big fat line in between that and say, uh, 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 faithful leadership looks like this over here. He's drawing hard distinctions. But that's not all he's doing. Yes, he's drawing hard distinctions, but he's also drawing soft distinctions within within these topics he's covering. And so here, he's giving a soft distinction that can be made within the group of elders, within the group of faithful leaders within the church. And so the first matter that we should concern ourselves with is we need to identify these men. Who's Paul talking about? We've got elders in this context. It's a normal thing. It's a unified, consistent pattern. Who are we talking about when we talk about honoring elders uh, who rule well? And so verse 17 says, "Honor. Uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And quite honestly, this verse has been difficult. This verse has been, uh, many conclusions about this verse have been made, and they are vastly different, some of them. But what we can be certain of here is that what Paul is not doing in verse 17, and he's not making a formal distinction between elders, meaning he's not creating a third office here. He's not saying elders, and then elders A, elders B, and deacons are to rule and to serve in the church. He's not doing that. Uh, Some have interpreted this to mean that there are elders who should teach and preach and elders who should exercise oversight but not teach and preach. And that would be contradicting Paul's own words in chapter 3, verse 2. Every elder is to be able to preach. They should be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And so what Paul's not doing is creating a third office here. One convincing argument that helps us to see uh, what Paul is saying and what he is getting at. One convincing argument is that this word especially here in verse 17 can be best translated as namely or that is. So another way to read that would be let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Namely, I mean those who labor in teaching and preaching. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That is, those who labor in teaching and preaching. And so in this case, Paul's not drawing a line between those who rule well and those who preach and teach. Rather, Paul is saying that those who rule well are precisely those who labor at teaching and preaching. Paul is stating that elders rule well by their teaching and their preaching. They rule well by their faithful leadership. And these men are the ones who are to be honored with double honor. So now we have the identity here. The identity of these men found out. Double honor that Paul is speaking of, how should we honor them? What does what double honor look like? And this has two elements to it. And we talked about one of them last week. Well, we talked about both of them last week. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into both of them this week. Two elements of double honor is honor... And also pay. And so the word honor, when you think of the word honor, you should honor someone you think rightly so. Respect them. There's a respect that's due there. And so honor does mean that. It does have an element of respect. There is to be a, uh, a respect for faithful leaders in the church. A respect for the office of leader within the church. In fact, 1 Timothy five twelve through 13 Paul says, We ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Well, who's that talking about? Well, Paul says, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, he's talking about leaders in the church, elders in the church who are laboring among the flock, and he said, respect them. And then he goes a bit further and says, esteem them highly in love because of their work. And so, yes, there's an element of respect, an element of honor here with this office. And then uh, uh, Paul goes on from there. Uh, In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, these these men who are laboring, they're laboring uh, not not just in teaching and in preaching. That is absolutely what they're doing. But he puts a sharper focus on it. He says, they're laboring and watching over your souls. Philippians 1.25 says that these laborers are laboring for your joy. And so the idea, the double honor going to these men, there should be a respect that we have for the office of elder. So let's hit the pause button. How you doing on that? Can this be said of you? So be a, a look in the mirror, ask yourself the question this morning. Do you have a respect? Can it be said of you that you... Uh, esteem the elders and the leaders of this church highly in love because of the work that they're doing, because of their watching over your soul, laboring with you for your joy. Can that be said of you this morning? So let's move on. Not just honor, but also pay. Paul takes up this idea of double honor, and primarily, yes, he's talking about honor, and yes, he's talking about respect, but primarily he's talking about uh, paying pastors for their labor. and If you remember last week, uh, Ryan pointed us back to Mark 7, where uh, the Pharisees had taken this commandment of God that had to do with uh, honoring your father and your mother, and they said, no, 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 no. Don't worry about honoring your father and your mother. The way you're really holy is you take your money and instead of honoring father and mother with it, you give it to God. You just call it Corbin. It's given to God. So Ryan drew out from that passage that honor here has a financial aspect to it, to which I agree. So this here says uh, that that this pay, this honor, has a payment aspect to it. And so the financial support that Paul has in mind here is not just something practical Paul's not just making this up. This is a, a, a well established teaching that has its roots in God's word. Now, why do we say that? Why do we, how do we know that paying of pastors, something that seems extremely practical, yes, you should pay your pastors? Why? Well, the answer ought to be because God's word says so. God's word instructs us to do this, which is what Paul does here in verse 18. So, look at verse 18. He says, four, for we're trying to answer the ask the question, why, why should we why should we double honor them? Why should we pay them? Well, because the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And you think, what does that mean? Super random thing to, to say here, Paul. Uh, but the idea here is that in this in this example, an ox was was uh, made to walk circles on this threshing floor. And men would take these grasses that contain these edible grains and they'd throw them in front of the the ox. And as the ox walked about and they kept throwing this grass in front of him, his hooves would separate the edible grain from the grass. And as he was doing this, uh, as this this ox was doing this labor, just walking around all hours, hours, and hours upon uh, uh, in a day, he'd, he'd walk and walk and walk. And as he was doing this, God commanded in Deuteronomy 25, he said, don't muzzle him while he does this. Don't muzzle this ox while he's treading out the grain. Let him eat as his payment. Don't muzzle him. Let him eat as a payment. And Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 9, and he asks a question, he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Yes, God cares about oxen. Don't hear that wrong, but is that the primary thing that God is getting at? That he really cares about an oxen out of all the animals Don't muzzle him, let him eat. Is he really concerned about this? And Paul says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? And then he concludes, it was certainly written for our sake. And so Paul's quote from the Old Testament here, he uses this in a how much more kind of way. If God said that we should make these kind of provisions for oxen, how much more should we make provisions to pay our faithful leaders in his It's a how much more, an argument from something small to something great, the oxen being the small thing. So if the oxen is to receive payment for his labor, how much more ought the elders, the leaders of God's church, receive payment for their labor? And that's not all he quotes. So he quotes something way back in the Old Testament and brings it into the New Testament and says, This is God providing for his faithful elders in the church. Look at it. But he also grabs something in the New Testament. Look at verse 18 again. He says, the laborer deserves his wages. And so again, Paul picks up uh, this quote here from Jesus and picks it up in 1 Corinthians 9.14 and says that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so what Paul's doing here when he says double honor to these these faithful leaders in the church, he goes and he grabs uh, quotes from two unquestioned authorities. You've got Moses and you've got Jesus. And he says this is a well-attested teaching in God's Word. God desires for his faithful leaders uh, to be paid for their labor. In fact, uh, the quote that he brings out from Jesus says uh, that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so, we have it for Moses and Jesus. Paying faithful pastors, this is a well-attested teaching in the New Testament. I can't can't help but take a moment here to to point out that Paul, when he quotes Jesus here, uh, he's quoting the New Testament. And he says, this is Scripture. Pointing us back to the question we asked earlier, is the New Testament sufficient enough for us to... uh, to, to come up to, to understand the teaching of God for God's church. Do we have enough in the New Testament to understand how we ought to order ourselves uh, as, as God's church? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Jesus had faithful leaders in his church leading his bride when he said things like, the laborer deserves his wages. And you gotta think about this with that statement. The shepherds that are over Christ's church are not. Head shepherds, they're under shepherds. They shepherd under the authority of another. They don't shepherd as leading men. They shepherd under the authority of Jesus Christ who calls himself the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd is the one that we want to see emulated. We want to see him, uh, we want to see his work exalted. And Christ, the chief shepherd, is making provisions for his under shepherds to, to be paid for their labor. And this is a kind thing of Christ. He cares for all in his church. And he cares for those who are leading his church. So much so that he would even take care of practical needs. When the chief shepherd himself said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. The chief shepherd, not taking payment for his labor, yet ruling well, ruling in a way that no shepherd no under-shepherd has been able to uh, walk in perfectly because we're filled with sin. But him being sinless, he sets a wonderful example here. It's an amazing thing that Christ would uh, say, pay labors when uh, he himself was not taking pay for his own work. And so, paying, faith, pay, paying faithful pastors is a well-attested idea in the New Testament. So how do we think practically about this? Old Testament has much to say. New Testament has much to say. What do we do now? So I think two things that we can think through is this passage will help us to understand how we should pay, and then also helps us to understand who we should pay. So how we should pay, we can learn a lesson from the ox when we consider this question. What you don't want the ox to do when it's treading out the grain is to hesitate. When the ox is walking around, you don't want to muzzle him because that's going to cause him to hesitate. Therefore, we should let him, uh, God says, pay him for his work. Let him receive a payment for his work. And in the same way, we don't want leaders in the church to hesitate in their study of God's word out of a concern for money. We don't want them to do that. One commentator said, What we want is quality men giving quality time to quality study to produce quality teaching, and that's going to take resources and to help us understand how we should pay as well this is a helpful thing for me. He- Hebrews 13:17 puts a sharper focus on it and it says this. Hebrews 13:17 says obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now that's a weighty statement. Obey your leaders and submit to them why? Because they're they're watching out for your souls but not just because they're watching out for your souls as those who are going to give an account to God for your souls. There's some weight applied here. And then he goes on and says, let them meaning the elders watch out for your souls. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning because that would not be of any advantage to you. So, No advantage to you if we have leaders who are going to give an account for your souls and they do it joylessly. That's no advantage to you to serve you without joy. And so, excuse me, we want our leaders who are keeping watch over our souls to do their work with joy. And another way to say this is we want them to do it without hesitation. Don't worry about your pay. Pay them so that they might do their work with joy and without hesitation. And it's tempting to think, I've actually heard this interpreted this way, that double honor means double pay. And that is not true. (laughs) And so I'm really sorry to Dustin and Ryan. We're not meeting after this to double your salaries. Anybody who is wanting to make this pulpit a means of gain by making twice the amount of money they ought to make, you're not finding that here, does not mean double pay. But what does it mean? In terms of practical ways to think through paying our pastors, paying men now, and then also paying uh, pastors and elders in the future. And one simple way to think about this, and this is so practical, our pastors should not live above or below the average member in this congregation. We don't want to pay them so low that they hesitate. We don't want to pay them so much that they are then snared by the riches of the world, snared by things. So we don't want to pay them above or below uh, the congregation. So there's how we should pay. What about who we should pay? We are likely going to be calling men into leadership in this church who will have part-time, maybe even full-time jobs. And what we're striving for, no matter who it is, part-time, full-time jobs, no jobs at all outside of laboring over the church what we're striving for is appointing qualified men who care for the sheep well lead well and devote time to studying and preaching and teaching but here's the question since that's what we want qualified men preaching teaching lots of time devoted to studying what if God raised up 50 faithful leaders tomorrow in this church what would we do? Tough question. The first thing we would do is we would rejoice. We'd praise God for helping this small local church in Jackson, Mississippi. We'd praise God for that. Lost my place. But, here's the question. Could we support them? Could we pay 50 qualified men uh, enough to do their work without hesitation and with much joy. And the answer is probably not. I doubt it. Unless people hit the lottery really quickly, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so, how should we think about who we should pay? Well, look back at verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of honor, especially those who, who uh, labor in teaching and preaching. And we need to see that there, this is a soft distinction that's about to be made, okay? Not drawing hard lines between... Uh, faulty or failed leadership and faithful leadership, but a soft distinction is about to be made. And he's making a soft distinction here in terms of time between elders who can devote more time to studying and teaching and preaching and elders who cannot devote that amount of time to studying and teaching and preaching. There are going to be faithful elders who spend much time teaching and preaching, and there are going to be faithful elders who do not spend as much time teaching and and preaching due to uh, jobs, due to families, due to outside circumstances, uh, and that's okay. That's okay. And one thing that uh, we need to remember is that every elder is going to have the this, this same qualification. They must be able to teach, but maybe only some that we appoint will have enough time to, to, to do the teaching. And here's one thing this doesn't mean, okay? Okay. There's some of what it does mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. There's not, a, not such a thing as an A-team an elder and a B-team elder. Super varsity, junior varsity. That is not a thing. That does not exist. But what we will have is a group of equally qualified men who devote time to study God's Word and serve God's church through faithful leadership. And those who are able to devote much time to teaching and to preaching, to the study, to the laboring over God's Word, as long as it fits within the church budget, and that's an important parenthesis there, as long as it fits within the church budget, they will be paid. They should be paid. And so, Paul moves on From the payment of elders in verses 17 and 18. Basically saying a faithful pastor doing his job, he's going to be working hard. And he needs to be paid for it. And a faithful pastor who's doing a job will also be getting into trouble. This is a sinful world. Everyone in this room, everyone on this planet with a pulse is shot through with sin. And it's a pastor's job. To stand against sin. you imagine that? Everyone on the planet has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even in Christians, there is remaining sin still in our members. And it's a pastor's job to stand against sin. Call it what it is. It is sinful and offensive to God. And call men and call women in the church outside the church, call them to repentance. And because pastors have a public, a public ministry, leaders, because of that type of work, they will often experience an unfair amount of criticism for their work. And for this reason, Paul gives Timothy instructions on handling accusations that come against elders. Look at verse 19. We're going to read 19 through 21. He says, <clears throat> He says, do not admit a charge against an elder on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We'll stop there. I said 19 through 21, just 19, okay? Don't admit a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So first, Paul brings up the matter of, of evaluating charges, okay? We want to we take this and, 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 and look at what kind of charges are coming. And Paul emphasizes the protection of elders against any unsubstantiated accusations, Paul says that for pastors, what we need to do is have the rough equivalent in our mind of pastors are innocent until proven guilty. Timothy is to be extremely cautious in bringing charges against an elder's character. All charges, large or small, must be substantiated by two or three responsible people before it's ever to even be considered. Don't even entertain it. Practically, For Timothy, this looked like, don't even entertain gossip. Don't entertain gossip about a leader. Certainly don't even entertain serious accusations if it only comes from one person. Now, that is not to say that pastors cannot sin. That's not to say that pastors do not sin. But there must be, according to this verse, there must be a starting presumption that they have not sinned. Now, Why? Why would there need to be a starting presumption that pastors and elders and leaders in the church they have not sinned? And the reason is because one of the jobs of the pastors as we've seen as we've said already is to call out sin and call for repentance. And when sin is confronted, it's often met with hostility, lies, slander about their character and about the one who called for the sin, called out the sin and called for the repentance. Now, there's an example of this. There are examples of this all over the place, all in the, in the Bible, all outside the Bible. And I'll give one that I thought was great just because I love the story. Uh, in 1 Kings 22, you've got a story about uh, the king of Israel and the king of Syria. And the king of Syria had declared war on the king of Israel. So he comes and is ready to, do, ready to make war against Israel. The king of Israel's name was Ahab. And he calls up uh, the king of, uh, of Judah, whose name was Jehoshaphat. He says, hey, come help me. And Jehoshaphat says... I'm there. I'll be there shortly. When we get there, let's inquire of the Lord to see how the outcome of this is going to be. And so King Ahab says, great. He calls all his prophets. 400 men come. And they all have one thing to say to the king of Israel. The king of Israel says, what's the outcome going to be? And all the prophets say, you got this. God is going to save you. And Jehoshaphat says, the king of Judah, who's come to help, he says, really? Like, for real? He's going to, I mean, is there anybody else that we can hear from? And the king uh, of Israel says, yeah, there's one guy who I didn't call. And I'll read this to you. This is 1 Kings 22, 8. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we, we may inquire of the Lord. Micaiah, the son of Imla. But I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, only evil. Why does the king hate him? Well, the king hates him because Micaiah always says everything you do is evil. He's calling out all the sin. Now, why is Micaiah calling out all this sin? Well, one reason is because Ahab was a wicked, evil man. Another reason is because Micaiah was a God-fearing, holy man. And he stood against the the wickedness and the evil that Ahab sought after. And when he called him out for it, time after time after time, hatred stirred up in Ahab's heart. He said, I don't even want to hear from this guy. I hate him. And this is common today. This happened over 2,000 years ago, this story about Ahab and Micaiah and Jehoshaphat. This happened over 2,000 years ago, and yet this very thing it's common today. Elders who stand firm on truth tend to experience unfair criticism. Imagine if we brought character charges against, we as a church, if we brought character charges against our leadership based on accusations from someone who has been offended by being called to repentance. Does that sound like good order or a pending disaster? The pending disaster. we am used to Bible study. I'm used to people feeding by, giving me some feedback here. It's a pending disaster. It's a disaster waiting to happen. And so we don't want to bring charges up uh, that are unsubstantiated. For this reason, Paul says that the standard in the church is a charge against the leaders should not be considered unless it's substantiated by multiple responsible people and then can be clearly proven. So be careful, Timothy. But, that's not to say that pastors are never going to sin. That's not to say that pastors are immune from sin. There will be, there may be occasions where the charges against uh, an elder of ongoing sin, they prove to be true. And if this is the case, Timothy is to publicly rebuke these men, showing no partiality and showing no bias. Let's look at verse 20 and 21. Paul says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. And so Timothy is to publicly rebuke pastors uh, who are caught in ongoing sin. This rebuke, likely uh, includes removal from the pulpit, not preaching anymore. And it may even include removal from the church. Flip back with me to chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So here's the question. Or, or here's the, the situation. Timothy, go to Ephesus. Charge them. Lay out a standard for them that says, stop teaching this doctrine. Here's the question. What if they repent? Man, praise God. Praise God they repent. That's the goal. When Timothy charges them, they, they actually obey. They stop teaching this doctrine. Here's another question. What if they don't? What if they don't repent? What happens then? Well, what happens is uh, removal from their post, removal from uh, the pulpit, and even if they continue in this sin of teaching false doctrine in the church, uh, removal from the church. And some may think that sharp public rebuke is unloving, but... Listen to me on this. The most unloving thing to do for all parties involved is to dismiss the, command of, the commands of Christ in his church. That's the most unloving thing to do. It's unloving of Christ, it's unloving of his church, and it's unloving of the offender. Which is why Paul says in verse 21, show no favoritism, show no partiality. Take courage and rebuke these men who are, cons- who are consistently walking in sin. They have patterns of sin in their life, and they're leading the church astray. Rebuke them. And if, we, if you're still in chapter 1, this public rebuke is tempered by something that Paul has already said. The idea of this public rebuke is found in, in, uh, in verse 5, where Paul says, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so, uh, the The aim of what paul is going for the the public rebuke is an act of love here it 's not meant to be something that 's mean spirited it 's meant to be an act of love it 's love for christ it 's love for his church and it 's love for the offender <clears throat> now motivation let 's talk about motivation for public rebuke what 's the what 's the fire that burns underneath this what 's the thing that that It uh, gives it energy and and, and helps it go. What should we be thinking about when we think about motivation for public rebuke? One motivation for public rebuke is to minimize the harm to the name of Christ. Because of the public nature of the work of elders, ongoing sin in their lives publicly drags the name of Jesus through the mud. It drags his reputation through the mud. There was a well-known pastor... About four years ago, caught in an adulterous affair and accused of multiple other adulterous relationships during that time. The church called it a gross misuse of power. That is putting it lightly. They should have called it a grievous offense to the King of Glory. They should have said this from the pulpit and on every social media outlet that they posted this on. They're dragging the name of Christ through the mud. This man stood in the pulpit proclaiming the name of Jesus, calling sinners to repentance, all the while behind closed doors he was seeking his own lust-filled desires. That is wicked, and it ought to be called wicked. Timothy is to publicly rebuke these men, call them out, because the public nature of their ministry drags their name through the mud. Drags Christ's name through the mud as if they keep sinning. Galatians 2.14 shows Paul opposing Peter to his face. That's a big statement. Peter spent likely the most amount of time with Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. He was around him the most. And Paul opposed him to his face. And Galatians 14 tells us why. It says because Peter was doing something and his conduct was not in step with the gospel. Paul was zealous for the name of Christ to be held high in the church. So that's motivation number one. Motivation number two is that... uh, Public rebuke maintains holiness in the church. It prevents future sins in the church. Notice how verse 20 says that this public rebuke is to happen so that the rest may stand in fear. And the rest here is speaking of the elders. The elders who see this public rebuke happen, they're going to see this and they're going to stand in fear. But this is not just going to happen in front of a group of elders. This is going to happen publicly in front of the church. And so all the church is also going to see and hear this public rebuke and stand in fear. The goal here is that the weight of sin must be realized and it must be felt so as to prevent further sins. And you've seen this, you can see how this would work. Think back to Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias went and sold a piece of land. He took the prophet from the land and he was about to bring it to Peter, lay it before his feet and... He held back some of the land, some of the proceeds from the land, and he only gave a portion of it. Not a problem. It's not a problem that he did that. But he lied about it. He says, This is all the proceeds from the land. And Peter, in a moment of of extreme spiritual insight in that moment, said, You've lied against the Holy Spirit. And God struck Ananias and his wife dead right then. That's a way, that's a form of public rebuke, the very public judgment that happened there. Now, imagine you are next in line. One of two things is going to happen. You're going to run back to your house, get all your money that you left behind, and you're going to lay it out and say, I'm clean. This is all of it. Or or you're going to say, Peter, listen, I sold a piece of land. I kept half, but here's the half. That's exactly what you're going to do. Why? Because public rebuke maintains holiness in the church. This public rebuke is intended to prevent future sins. And Ananias and Sapphira, perfect example of that. So that's the motivation. We want to prevent future sins. And we also want to minimize the harm to the name of Christ. Motivation. What about the goal? What's the target? What's the thing we're shooting for? Motivation is the fire that makes it go, the fire that gives it energy. What's the goal? And the goal in public rebuke is repentance and restoration of the brother involved. The goal of public rebuke here in 1 Timothy 5 is the exact same goal in the rebuke that Jesus told us to, to give in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And that's the goal here. Rebuke is not meant to just be something that we do to rub something in somebody's face. It's meant to help sin be, uh, to be realized and to be felt and call that brother to repentance and hopefully restore him back into uh, right graces within the church. If at any point the brother listens and repents, disciplinary measures, disciplinary measures they cease. And a quick note on this. When I say that uh, the, 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 the goal here is to uh, provide restoration from the, for the brother, I want to be really clear what I mean, okay? There are sins that permanently disqualify a man from ever preaching and teaching In God's church again that exists and so though uh, this man may be guilty of sin and he repent restoration should not look like he gets to take up the office of elder and lead God's church again and that is that is good and right that that happened but hear me on this that kind of restoration is a good thing but it doesn't mean he's not saved because he's not preaching his justification is in no way in question if, if he repents of his sin and is brought back into communion with the church. We're not saying, the church is not saying that he's not saved, but do hear that he should not teach in the church again. He should, for the rest of his days, be a faithful member of that local church. And to add on to that story I was telling you about earlier about a pastor who had had, had an adulterous relationship, he actually was restored back into leadership of the church, And that is a constant dragging of the name of Christ through the mud. We don't want that. We want to prevent that. Let's look at verse 21 here. Who's watching this? Who's, this, this public rebuke. Is this only meant for, for elders and, and uh, the church members? Is that the only audience here? Look at verse 21. In the presence of God... And Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. It's as if he puts, Paul puts Timothy in the courtroom of God and says, you need to go after public rebuke in the because this is in the presence of God. It's in the presence of Christ Jesus. Why should why is public rebuke a needed and necessary thing? Because Jesus is watching. Now this is an amazing thing to think about. That Jesus is watching. Revelation 120 describes the church. It refers to the church as lampstands. Revelation 120. Lampstands. Revelation 2.1 says that Jesus walks among his lampstands. Jesus is walking among his churches. What an amazing thought that is. Jesus, God Almighty, walking among his churches. You got to think about this. There was a time, if you can call it a time, before earth was ever created, before there was ever a universe that God upheld with the word of his power, there was a time before any angel was ever made. There was a time before even heaven was created where God's presence is manifestly made now. There was a time before that. And you know what there was in that time? God. God alone. God the Father. God the Son. God the Spirit. Needing nothing. Perfectly happy in the fellowship of the Trinity. Absolutely self-sustaining and absolutely self-sufficient. Needed absolutely nothing. Nothing. And yet this passage says that that Jesus walks among his churches. It's amazing. Think about Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 says that, that Isaiah had this vision of God, and says, it says, "I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple." Well, who's that? That's Jesus Christ, and he's seeing him in glory. And he goes on to describe these, these creatures, these beings that have six wings, and with two they cover their face, and two, they cover their body, and with two they fly. And they're limping around the, the throne of Jesus Christ, and they're shielding themselves from his glory. And they're saying things like: Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And it says that when they say that, the foundations of the threshold tremble. Now, quick note here. These these beings, they're called cherubim and seraphim. I don't know what they are, but I do know they're huge. They're massive. If one were to stand here today, not here, that would be ridiculous. If we went outside and we looked and we saw one, he'd be head and shoulders above the highest cloud you could see. And if he stretched his wings out, one would go as far to the right as you could see, as far as your eyes could even see, and as far to the left as you could see. And the reason I say that they're huge is because I'm yelling pretty loud right now. Ain't nothing in this room shaking. But they're in heaven in the presence of God. And as they scream, Holy, 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 heaven shakes. And if if that's amazing to you that these beings are doing that, That's nothing compared to who they're saying this about. They're proclaiming the glory of another. And that one that they're proclaiming the glory of, it says he walks among his churches. That's amazing. And then imagine this, that one seated on his throne, cherubim, seraphim, worshiping him day and night. He gets up and advances towards earth. Can you fathom that? The infinite one becoming infant. And then in his earthly ministry, Jesus, he healed sick people. And he, he cast out demons. You know how he did that? Magic? No. He did it with words. He said things he said things like like uh, be still and megastorms turned into soft breezes he said things like lazarus come out and a man that had been dead for days had nothing flowing through his body he was dead 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 he came out of the tomb because when jesus spoke life pulsed into his veins that's amazing And then that one is the one that walks among His churches. And then this Jesus, this Jesus, it says that in 1 Peter 2, it says that He bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's bearing our sin. Well, what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal with that is that your sin deserves God's wrath. My sin deserves God's wrath. And he bore it on the tree and drank God's wrath for us. That's the one who walks among his churches. This one died. You say God can't die. And you're right, which is why we celebrate Jesus as the God man. God becoming flesh, putting on skin, bones, becoming made in likeness of men. He died. And then he shows three days after his death that even death bows the knee to Jesus Christ. He comes out of the grave. And then Daniel 7 tells us he's brought before one that's called the Ancient of Days. And to him is given a dominion and authority and a people from all nations and languages and tribes and tongues. And that is the one who walks among his churches. Can you see it? Can you picture that? This is not an insignificant building. You are not an insignificant group of people. Jesus dwells in His church and He walks among His churches. And so, Jesus is among His church and He's honored. We honor that one when we structure ourselves and order ourselves according to His Word and we walk in obedience to Him. That honors that one. Let's go after that. <clears throat> it's hard to transition from that. Because of the unpleasant reality of disciplining elders, the selection of elders calls for both wisdom and care and patience. And so the next section, Paul admonishes to, or encourages Timothy to choose leaders wisely. And this serves as a simple practical explanation as well. Um, Paul tells Timothy to choose leaders wisely, and he says there's two ways, or there's, there's two ways to interpret this, negatively and positively. The negative way to say it to Timothy is, Timothy, don't be careless. Don't be careless in the selection of elders. It is difficult to discern a diseased plant from a healthy plant in a young garden. That's a difficult thing to do. Much time must pass before the disease becomes evident. And the exact same thing is true for sin in the heart. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, The, sum of some pe- the sins of some people are conspicuous. They're, they're obvious. They're obvious. They, it's almost like they're, just, they're so obvious it goes before them to judgment. <clears throat> the sins of some men are obvious and no one would appoint a man with serious moral failings. But... It's the sins that are not obvious, that are dangerous, and they take time to show. Therefore, Timothy, don't be careless in this matter of appointing elders. Carelessly appointing elders is the path of a pending disaster in the church. Look at this very church in Ephesus as an example. Had so many problems in this church. What's at stake? What's at stake in the careless appointment of elders? And Paul says in verse 22... He essentially says being responsible for the sins of others. That's at stake. Look at verse 22. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands. Don't do that, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. What Paul is saying here is if out of haste or negligence, Timothy appoints someone who is unqualified or If out of haste or negligence, Timothy leaves someone in position who should not be there because they're guilty of sin, he will in some sense share in the sin of others. He will in some measure bear the responsibility for sins overlooked or committed in the future. Therefore, Timothy, don't be careless. Don't be careless. Keep yourself pure. So that's the negative way to say it. The positive way to say it is take great care in the selection of elders. And one way that Timothy is to take great care in the selection of elders is only except tested men. Men who have been tried and who meet the qualifications. Paul has already spoken this way in this letter. He's spoken this way in chapter 3, verse 10 about the deacons. Look at, look at chapter 3, verse 10. He says, Let them, the, the deacons, uh, be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove to be blameless. So notice the then statement. Let them be tested first. And, and then, and only then, if they meet the test, if they meet the qualifications, if they pass the test, let them serve as deacons. And so, how much more, since Paul speaks this way about deacons, and, and not in any way demeaning the office and the work of deacons. As Dustin walked through, this is a, a glorious office with with. Uh, high qualifications, high standards. But Paul says, for leaders in the church, those who are teaching and leading and shepherding God's people as one who are going to give account to their souls, how much more ought they be tested? How much more ought they be tried? There needs to be a care that's given here. So, therefore, Timothy, be careful. Don't be careless. Be discerning. Be patient. And then we come to uh, verse 23. And if you have an ESV Bible, and maybe it does this in others, it literally has verse 23 in parentheses. And I'm going to just go ahead and be real honest with you. I have no idea why this is in here. No idea, okay? It's a personal aside. It's almost like Paul kind of remembers something and he's like, okay, water, not, not I mean, uh, wine, not water. Now, uh, it, it has a it has purpose. This is... God's un, uh, this is God's uh, error-free word, so I want to make sure that we give it as due consideration. So, here's my thought, okay? Uh, water drinking only was a form of asceticism. It was a, it was a, a diet of severity to the body, okay? It was, uh, asceticism is usually viewed negatively, and it said, uh, hey, uh, this is how I'm being super holy. I'm going to not do this, I'm going to not do this, I'm going to not do this. And sometimes that got, uh, you know, food laws got brought into that. And so <clears throat> water drinking indicates some form of asceticism. And so Paul's giving a little bit of, of, of counter-instruction here. And it's almost like this counter-instruction here indicates that Timothy had just elected to only drink water and not partake of wine. And so Timothy was, was to keep himself pure, according to verse 22, but not by participating in asceticism in the pursuit of purity. He was not to say, here's what purity looks like. It looks like not drinking wine. How I'm going to be real pure, how I'm going to stay real holy, is that I drink water only and I don't drink wine. That's not what is being said uh, said here. Abstaining from wine is not what purity looks like in the church. And so the logic here is, is keep yourself pure, but in doing so, Don't partake in the lawlessness of those ascetic tendencies that the false teachers have that he's already talked about in chapter 4, verse 3. Don't do that. And so, my best shot at verse 23. Test me on it. Uh, That's the text. Let's make three quick applications. Final exhortation. This this exhortation is in light of our church moving toward uh, appointing more elders in the coming months or years. And so, here's the main exhortation. Don't sit on the sidelines. Be involved. As we think through appointing new elders, as we think through uh, uh, adding elders to uh, this local church, don't sit on the sidelines. New members, hold your hands up real quick. Okay. This includes you. Don't sit on the sidelines. Just because you're new doesn't mean you should not be involved. Be involved in this. I want to give you three ways to be involved, okay? Way number one: Pray. Pray fervently. Pray diligently, that God would help us and give us wisdom as we pursue this. In Acts twenty, it says that the Holy Spirit puts men in leadership over God's church. Therefore, we ought to pray that we do this well. We ought to pray for help and for wisdom in doing this. And here's some things to pray for. Here's here's something to help guide your praying. First thing, pray in thanksgiving for our current leadership who's striving to lead us according to God's word. Faithful leadership is a gift. It's not a gimme. It's a gift in the church. And so therefore, our church has been greatly gifted by God with faithful leadership. And so pray in thanksgiving for that. That's something that we ought to be happy about and joyful about. Pray for our current leaders as they consider adding more elders. There's wisdom and there's care that's needed in the process of adding elders. Pray for them to have wisdom in this. And then also, as new elders are put forth, pray for these elders for their purity, for their teaching, for their time and study. The banner that I said is flying over this whole sermon is Ephesians 3.21. To him be glory in the church. Pray that that would be the banner that hangs over their life as they approach leadership in the local church. Pray that for them. Okay, number two. There's three of these. Number two. Get to know these men. That might sound like a no-brainer, but get to know them. And if they have families, get to know their families. Don't let there be... When, when it comes time to vote, don't let there be names on the ballot where you go, "Uh, all right, well, I trust everybody on this one. I'm going to say yes. Don't act like you've never done that before. Don't do that. We don't want that to be the case. Go after getting to know these men. This is an important thing. New members and veteran members alike, your walk with the Lord will be directly affected by the leadership, in, by their leadership inside and outside the church. Your, your individual walk will be affected by their leadership. Therefore, get to know them. See how they interact with their families. If they have kids, watch their lives and get to know them. One last point on that. I meant to add this in. I don't even want to know how many parents there are in here have, over half this congregation is a parent. Parents with young children, when you think about adding new elders, when, when we think about appointing new elders... Your children are going to spend, Lord willing, unless the Lord returns, and that would be far greater, but your, your children are going to spend a vast majority of their life growing up on the, under the influence of these men, both inside this church and outside this church. You need to get to know these men. So be involved by attempting, attempting to get to know these men. And the last one here, be intentional about, getting, about raising up leaders. Be intentional. Have an urgency in accomplishing this task. And I'm not contradicting the very thing that Paul just taught. What I want us to go after, what we ought to be striving to go after is not being impatient, but being urgent. We ought to be, uh, not lay hands on people hastily. We ought to be patient. But there ought to be an urgency in getting this task done. Titus Titus 1.5. Paul says to, to Titus, he says, here's why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. So that sounds like urgent. Titus has a job. What's it to do? Appoint elders urgently. But he's not saying, but do it hastily. Like do it. Like just go find somebody and, and check the boxes and lay your hands on them. Done. He's not saying that. What, what he is saying is there is something that needs to be done and therefore have urgency in it, but, but don't grow impatient over it. Have urgency in it, but don't be hasty in this. And as we've said, faithful leadership, this is a gift from God to his church. And Jesus Christ, the one that we just spoke about, he gets glory in his church through the faithful service of godly leaders. Therefore, how do you be involved? We go after this. We don't let this be something that other people, other holier people than I, can can figure out on their own. They, They probably get it right. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be hasty in, be, be uh, uh, urgent in going after this thing, but let's not be hasty in this thing. Be patient. Urgent and patient. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. God, you are good to us to give us your word. You're good to us to give us your word in a language that even we can understand. And God, we ask that after, as we've, as we've opened your word and worshiped you through Uh, What's in your word, God? We ask that you would be glorified through this teaching, God. We ask that Christ would get glory in his church. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we move towards uh, appointing new elders in this church. God, that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to operate with much care. God, that you would give us an urgency and also a patience in accomplishing this task. And God, we don't claim this for ourselves, Lord. We can do nothing apart from you. God, please come help us. Lead our church. Make it obvious that it is only your hand that has been leading us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.